Alexander. Yeah, awesome. Thanks for having me here with you. Um, trust that the Lord is granting uh, Pastor Darren much rest uh, from his ministry here. Uh, but it's my privilege to be here with you this morning and also a little sneak peek next week as well. So uh, it's a long passage as Candace read. Thank you, Candace. But it's a long passage. We have a lot to get through. So um, I have the privilege of taking two weeks to, to get through it. So um, Giddy up. <laughs> Before we get started, though, if you have your Bible open already to Romans chapter 4, uh, great, keep your finger there, but also you'll want to find your way to Genesis chapter 12 as well, and we'll be working through Genesis, and I'll explain why uh, in just a minute. But here what we have in Romans uh, chapter 4, really, Paul in the book of Romans is really giving a theological kind of lesson to the church in Rome. And uh, what we see happening is that he's giving, he's in the middle of giving a bit of a, a systematic process of here's how you're saved, here's what it looks like, here's, here's why you're saved. Uh, a friend of mine refers to the book of Romans as the theological Himalayas of the Bible. And, and I think that's a good image because if you read through the book of Romans, it, it's tough slugging because it is a deep theological, high-level kind of understanding of exactly our, of, our, of our theology and how it is that we've been saved. And so if you are able to plow your way through the book of Romans, uh, you're going to want to give yourself lots of time because there's lots there, and they really are the, the Himalayas of theology where we can uh, marvel exactly at how, how this works and, and in God's divine wisdom, how he chose to bring about salvation. And so um, by this point, though, the church in Rome, uh, the Jews had been scattered, the Jews had been sent out uh, years and years prior to. Now the Jews have started to make their way back into the, the, the Roman Empire, and what's happened is that the, uh, the, the message of the gospel has reached now just beyond Jews, and so the Jews are now looking around, seeing that there's people who are con- claiming to be Christians, but they have not, they're not, they're not, they're not acting like it. They're, 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 uh, their actions certainly don't line up with their profession uh, to, to, to be Jewish. And so uh, it reminds me, uh, last year I was at a wedding, and uh, it was friends of mine, and there was, everyone was dressed appropriately for a wedding, and they were there to take, a, take part in this wedding and celebrate the, the bride and groom. Uh, there was these two sort of odd fellows who maybe were distant cousins or something like that. They wore matching, colorful, flaming, uh, or, 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 or flowered, um, and these really bright colored, uh, what are they called, rompers. <laughs> and uh, they just didn't seem like they really fit in. And so the Jews would have been similar to me sitting at this wedding wondering, how did these guys get in? <laughs> that would have been the Jewish response to Gentiles looking at non, non-Jewish people who have kind of snuck their way into this, uh, to this life. And so there, there was a bit of, bit of comparing where, whereby the, the Jews were saying that, you know, well, we have the pedigree, we have the lineage of Abraham in us, we have, we're proud of that, we're, we're purebred Jewish people and these half-breeds are not. In fact, they, they're imposters, they just kind of got in, they're unclean. And so this is where uh, in chapters 1, 2, and 3, Paul's kind of deconstructing this idea that Jews carried about who they were in their lineage and uh, in, in chapter 4, as we see, he starts off by saying, what then shall we say was gained by Abraham? So he really pushes pause on his theological lesson, and he says, listen, let me show you what I mean. Let's go back to the beginning, let's go back to the book of Genesis, and let me show you what I mean about this. And so if you're a Star Wars fan, you'll know that decades and decades ago, back in the 70s, they came out with uh, what a lot of people thought would have been episodes 1, 2, and 3 of, of the trilogy. It was a, it was a story. Uh, and then all these years later, they came out when I was a kid. Uh, I grew up with the actual episode one, two, and three, which you learned later was helping to explain the earlier trilogy. So there's two trilogies that serve to explain each other. And so that's kind of what Paul does is he says, let's go back 
And let me give you a bit of a clearer picture. Let's explain what I'm trying to get at from what God's already revealed to us. So he uses the Bible to explain uh, essentially the Bible. And so this is why we're going to look at this in two parts because there's a lot to go through. So we have the privilege of taking two weeks to do it. And so this morning we're going to look at Romans chapter 4. The example that we have in the person of Abraham, Father Abraham. And then next week we'll look at, uh, because Abraham is our father of Jews and Gentiles alike, what does that mean? What's the reality for the church today? Why is that good? Why does it matter that Abraham is indeed our father? So we have two weeks to do that. We're looking at Abraham's example and then the, the practical realities of that for the church today. So let's get right into it with Abraham's example. Now, if you were a Jew, as I mentioned, you felt in this time, if you were living uh, in the Roman Empire, you were Jewish, you really felt elitist. You really felt proud of your your lineage, and you could trace your heritage, and your father, and your great-grandfather, and so on and so forth, and you could get yourself all the way back to Abraham. Uh, Much like in in, uh, tight-knit circles, like I, Andrew, and Bertram, and I spent some time on the mainland in Abbotsford, where if you're, if you're, you grew up in that area, you're probably from Manitoba at some point, and before that, you're probably from somewhere in Eastern Europe, and you're probably distantly related if you're part of that sort of tight-knit Mennonite family. And this was the same kind of thing where you could trace your genealogies and line up and find that you are indeed a descendant of Abraham. Now, a Jewish understanding of who Abraham was was that he was faultless. They almost held him up on a pedestal and and thought, they believed though, that he was righteous because of his obedience and because he just kept the law so perfectly. And he really was sort of the poster boy for the Jewish faith. Some of the uh, literature that's outside of the Bible, but uh, is is indeed more historical, uh, describes Abraham in words like this, that he was faultless, that he was was, uh, faithful in all of God's test, and he was perfect in all of his deeds and so if you were a Jew, you really looked up to Father Abraham really as your, as your example. And what Paul says is he breaks all that down and he says, listen, Paul, or pardon me, Abraham had no reason to be proud. He had no boast and neither do you. Not even Father Abraham had a reason to boast in his right standing, his righteousness before God. And then he takes all of Romans chapter four to basically say, let me show you what I mean. Because stories and analogies and illustrations are always helpful for students like the church in Rome, and so Paul knows that, and so he says, let me prove my point. He wasn't declared righteous because of, his, because of his faithfulness, because of his obedience, or because of what he did or kept the law. It wasn't for any of those reasons. It was simply by his faith. It wasn't because he was a do-gooder or a law-keeper. It's because simply he had faith. And so this morning, that's what I want to take the bulk of our time looking at. Those two primary aspects is the first of all is God's call, on Abraham, what does, that, what does that look like? What happened? We'll tell the story, we'll make two observations, and then the second part, we'll look at Abraham's faith. So God's call and Abraham's faith. And as I said, if you have a Bible with you, you'll want to keep your, uh, a finger back in the book of Genesis. And so Genesis chapter 12 on my Bible is page 9. <laughs> and there's a lot of pages after page 9. And so if, if you're familiar with the Bible, you'll know that on page 1, essentially God made everything and it was really good. And by page 2, it wasn't so good. Man and woman decided to take things into their own hands and things took a a turn for the worse. And so after page two, in the following pages and chapters, we see things like the flood. Um, After sin obviously was in the world, we see prior to the flood though that uh, Cain murdered his brother Abel. Uh, There was some jealousy about a sacrifice and and so there there was sin there that bubbled over and Cain killed his brother Abel. Uh, We see that evil began to increase. God sent a flood. He preserved one family, Noah and his family. Uh, after the flood subsides, we see in the next chapter, we see that there's the Tower of, of Babel. We see that, God, that uh, 
the people on earth are trying to, to, to basically reach God to try to do what their own thing. And that's not a good thing, by the way. The Tower of Babel is not a good story. And so God just says, says we're going to scatter everyone. We're going we're gonna to start over. And so this is where we pick up in, in uh, Genesis chapter 12, basically where God has now reached in to his creation, to mankind again, and he's going to roll up his sleeve and, and begin to unfold and reveal his redemptive purposes and his redemptive plan for history as he woos his creation, including you and me, the people he's made back into himself. And so Genesis chapter 12, we'll start in verse 1. It starts just like this. It says, Now the Lord said to Abraham, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abraham, verse 4, went as the Lord told him. Now we see, though, that Abraham was 75 years old. I'm not 75 uh, I'm I, a ways away from 75, but Lord willing, I'll get there. Uh, but he was 75, and this, this, this promise might sound familiar to you. Maybe you've read it before, and you're familiar with, yeah, God made this promise to Abraham of, of descendants, and that they would go into a land, and that they would become a great nation, and that there would be a blessing. And God makes this fourfold promise to Abraham, that he will become a father, he will get, be a uh, father a nation, they will inherit a land and they will be a blessing. And this is really ironic because what we know about Abraham so far is that he's 75, so he's really, him and his wife Sarah are past childbearing years. Uh, they, they've kind of resigned to the fact that they would be childless for their years. Um, and n- not only that, that even if they were younger, Sarah was barren. They, they couldn't have kids. They weren't able. God had not allowed that to happen. So not only did they not have children, but God has just called them out of the thing that was, was so familiar to them. God said, leave your family your, 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 his extended family, so Abraham's, um, his forefathers and that clan, and, and move away. And so your two most things, that the, the, the two most valuable things about you would have been your clan, your family, and your, your, your land. And God called him out of both of those and said, I've got something better for you. Also, he promises to give him children, but we know that that, by all human measures, was not possible. Couldn't happen. They've tried that. And so then, then we begin to see that Abraham, right away in verse 4, says, Abraham did as the Lord told him. He goes down, he descends into a place called Canaan, and there God, uh, God, God uh, shows up to Abraham, and Abraham worships uh, God there. He builds an altar. And then what we see next is that there's a famine that comes, and so Abraham begins his journey down with all of his family. Uh, all of, he takes his wife, and there, he has his uh, nephew there, Lot, and all of their possessions. And they go down to a place called Egypt, and that's where later when the famine goes away, they begin to make their way back up and they land back at the place where they started where Abraham built that altar. And this is where, in, uh, and this is where, where Abraham worships God in, uh, in, in chapter 12. And then as we get into chapter 13, we see that Abraham and his nephew Lot, they decide that, you know, there's just, they're not getting along, not the two of them, but all their shepherds and their herdsmen, they're not getting along and both of their, 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 their wealth is accumulated too much that they just can't, it's just too big. They're too big of a group, they need to split. And so Abraham and his nephew Lot, they split up and that's where uh, then you see Lot gets, gets captured and th- through a kind of a military defeat. Lot gets captured and uh, Abraham goes and rescues him. And by the way, if it seems like we're going really quickly through a couple chapters of Genesis and the story of Abraham, that's because we are. Uh, our church back at Parksville, we're getting ready to, to study the story of Abraham and we're going to take several months to do it. <laughs> so it really is a lot to, to, to chew through, but we're going to fly through it 
uh, as we are. And so Abraham and Lot, uh, they separate. Lot gets captured. Abraham rescues him. And this is where in uh, verse 15, or, or chapter 15 rather, here's what happens when God appears to Abraham in a vision. Chapter 15, verse 1 through till 6. It says, After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abraham in a vision. Fear not, Abraham. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abraham said, O Lord God, what have you, or sorry, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abraham said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household, in other words, a hired servant, a helper, kind of a farmhand, will be my heir. What is this? So God's made this great promise. Abraham and his wife Sarah have patiently waited, and they're saying, God, a lot's happened, but we, there's just still, there's no chance of anything changing here. What are you doing? Verse 4, and behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And, brought, and he brought him outside. So Abraham goes outside, and God says, look up. And he looks at the, the night sky and all the stars, and we live in a beautiful area with not a lot of things to get in the way. And so when you look up at the night sky, you see more stars than you could possibly count. And that's exactly what God says. He says, look up. And he says, look towards heaven, the number of stars, if you're able to number them, so shall your offspring be. And in verse 6, which is where Paul's kind of whole point hinges on, verse 6, it says, and he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. So in that moment, God reminded Abraham of what he was up to, and Abraham had a choice. It says that he believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And so the next scene is that Abraham, uh, God, command, God, God calls Abraham to give him a sacrifice, and so Abraham does that. He obeys. He makes a sacrifice with animals to the Lord. And in Genesis chapter 16, after waiting long enough, they decide, you know what? We still don't have children. We still don't have a child. We've moved away. We're in this land, but God, what are you doing? And so at age 85, Sarah comes up, when Abraham's at age 85, sorry, Sarah comes up to Abraham, says, listen, God needs some help here. We've got to help him out. And so she has this great idea for Abraham to go spend the night with her, uh, with her hired servant, uh, Hagar. And so they do that, and uh, a year later, Ishmael is born. So finally, they have a son, right? Finally, there's some hope that now at least we don't have a nation or a land or all that stuff yet, but at least we have a descendant. At least we have something. Thanks, Sarah. Good idea. Genesis 17. This is where God appears to Abraham and makes this covenant with him. And one of the things he does is he changes their names. So Abram, up till this point, has been Abram, A-B-R-A-M. And Sarah has been S-A-R-A-I. Note the spelling, because God changes their names. Not, not terribly different in the English language, but names carried a lot of meaning back in this time. And so Abram, which meant exalted father, became Abraham, which means father of a multitude. And the name Sarah, with an I, got changed to Sarah with an H, like we would spell it today, which means princess. And this is where Isaac's birth is foretold. Here's what God says to Abraham on that night. He says, I will bless her, Sarah, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings and people shall come from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? Shall Sarah, who is 90, 90 years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live for you. In other words, God, we've worked so hard. In fact, we've even helped you out a little. Here's a, use Ishmael. D don't put Sarah through that. We've already done the hard work. Use Ishmael. That Ishmael might stand 
before you. And God said in verse 19, No, but Sarah your wife shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. He shall father 12 princes and I will make him into a great nation, but I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you this time next year. So 99 years old, finally, he's going to have his own son. (laughs) 99 years old, finally, God decides to show his hand in a practical way. And so lo and behold, as the book of Genesis goes on, Abraham's 100 years old, and Abraham indeed was the father of of Isaac, who then became the father of Jacob, who then became the father of nations, 12 tribes to be specific. And from those 12 tribes, that's where you see uh, Moses, you see Joseph. But of those 12 tribes, there's a line, there's a tribe of, of Judah, which we don't have time to get into, but from the tribe of Judah came down generation after generation after generation to Joseph, a man named Joseph, who became the husband of Mary, who is the mother of Jesus, who is the hope of salvation for all the world. He came to redeem sinners. So that's the story, roughly, (laughs) in a nutshell. Two things I think we learn. The first is that God achieves his divine ends using human means. God achieves his divine ends using human means. So I have four young kids, and for the last few years, uh, my my son, he's our oldest. He's going to be five next week. Uh, we've been promising him a trip to Disneyland, and uh, in his little mind, Disneyland is happening tomorrow, and all we got to do is just get there, and then it's just right there before us. And so in his little mind, Disneyland is, is right ahead of us. It's right there. We're going because Dad said so, and Dad always keeps his promises, which is true. A lot of the time, I, I like to do that. Um, this is a promise that I will keep. We will get, if the Lord allows, we will get to Disneyland. But see, what he doesn't understand is that between here and there, especially now, Going to Disneyland isn't quite as easy as it is in his little four-year-old mind. See, it costs money. We have to book tickets. I have to get time off to make that happen. Every time we go to the bottle depot, his grandparents bring us their empty pop cans all the time. And so we're going to get to Disneyland $9 at a time. We have a little jar at home, a little empty peanut butter jar that we keep throwing our money in. And eventually, when that jar fills up, we'll be able to buy our tickets, we'll be able to book, book the vacation, and we'll be able to get there. But in his little mind... I haven't lived up to my promise. Until we darken the, the, the doorway, the, the metaphorical doorway of Disneyland, until we walk through those gates and go on all the rides, I haven't kept my promise. But what he doesn't realize, though, is that my promise is in progress. I haven't, I haven't defaulted on my word. In fact, I'm fulfilling it. With every $9 I put in that jar, we're one step closer. The plan to get to Disney is, is happening. But I'm fulfilling my promise through time, through saving, through planning, and those kinds of means. And I think God works in a similar way. If you think about that, that little illustration of us getting to Disneyland, by comparison, we're like my four-year-old son <laughs> who think that the promises should just happen like that. And we don't realize all the steps that are between here and there. You see, Abraham waited anxiously, no doubt anxiously, 25 years before seeing any glimpse of hope. In fact, Paul says, in ho- against all hope, he believed. So while there was no hope, Abraham held on for 25 years even tried to help God out before God gave him any visible sign, any tangible sign like a son of fulfilling his promise. In fact, you see in the 
first chapter of Matthew, oftentimes when we start the Gospels, we just jump right down to the second section of Matthew, which starts uh, in, in closer to chapter two. We kind of skip that lineage, that genealogy, because it's just a bunch of names we can't pronounce, and so-and-so was the son of so-and-so, and we kind of work our way through it, and we skip it. But take, take a second and read through that genealogy of, of Jesus, because what we see is the lineage, it's tw- in total 28 generations, and it's broken up into two sections of 14. And for the first section of 14, it's up to Abraham, from Adam and Eve to Abraham. And then after Abraham, it's 14 generations to Jesus. So not only is it 28 generations that God sort of took to fulfill that promise of being a blessing to all people, but it's been over two, two millennia, 2,000 years or more since then, and God is still at work fulfilling that promise. That promise is still in progress. And here's how... Uh, the writer of Hebrews, Hebrews explains where Abraham, as far as he got, in Hebrews 11, there's a long list of, of what we call the hall of faith or the heroes of faith. Notable men and women who, over the course of God's story, have done remarkable things, remarkable acts of faith. And here's what the writer of Hebrews says in chapter 11, after listing them. He says, all of these died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on earth. You see, Abraham was expecting a promise to be fulfilled before he died, and he did die, and he got only a glimpse of that promise. And God is still today, all these years later, slowly fulfilling that promise that all might return, all might turn from their sin, repent, and believe in Christ, and thereby become a descendant of Abraham, which is what we're, I'm getting ahead of myself. We're going to talk about that next week, what that looks like. This promise is much bigger than Abraham realized. God chose to use human means to achieve his divine ends. See, there's a a line of thought known as deism. And deism would say, yep, there's a God. We can agree on that. But what God did was he wound up the cosmic clock of creation and he put it on a table and he walked away. And so God's there. He's just gone fishing. He's there, but he doesn't act. He's there, but he doesn't care. He did his work. He wound the clock, put it down, and walked away. But look no further than, than Genesis chapter 12, verse 1. Look no further than where we see that God spoke. Or the story of Noah. God spoke. You see, we don't serve a God who wound up a cosmic clock and walked, and walked away. We serve a God who gets his hands dirty. He speaks. He makes covenants. In fact, he's the one who upholds them. He didn't need Abraham's help with Ishmael. But it's God alone who upholds the covenants. He gets his hands dirty and he works in absolutely human means to achieve his divine end. So that's the first thing I think we learn from God's call is that God uses human means here and now in real time, in, in the real world to accomplish his will and good pleasure. That's the first thing. The second thing is that God does it for his glory. I believe that God's in it for his glory. I believe that's the whole reason as Christians we should believe that that's the whole, that's the whole point is God's glory so that God would get the fame he doesn't have to. He could have programmed us. He could have, he could have manufactured us where we're just following electronic commands to obey him and to go about human life. But take a second and imagine your spouse, if you're married, imagine your husband or your wife was programmed to love you and was programmed to serve you and was programmed to fold the laundry or was programmed to, to take you for dinner and bring, home, bring you home flowers. Oh, thank you, honey. <laughs> Imagine if that, that wouldn't be a marriage, that wouldn't be a covenant. 
In the same way, God chose not to program us, not to manufacture robots who just obey their commands, what's been programmed into our minds, but he chose to use these means for his glory so that we could know him and then he could know us and we could be known by him and we could honor him and thereby giving God his full glory, his due glory. Here's what it says in Deuteronomy chapter four. And so the nation of Israel, we're we're jumping ahead in the Old Testament here, but God's delivered miraculously the, the, the nation of Israel out of slavery after 400 years and they've been delivered and now the book of Deuteronomy is really about, okay, now what? And here's what God says to Moses in Deuteronomy chapter four after his mighty and miraculous hand at work. He says, to you it was shown that you might know that the Lord is God. There is no other besides him. Why did God free the nation of Israel from slavery? Because he promised he would, because they're his chosen people. And why did he do that? Through the process that he did, it says, it says, to you this was shown that you might know that the Lord is God. So God's in it for the glory. He does it using human means for his divine ends, and he does it for his glory. So let me ask you this. In 2020, on Vancouver Island in BC, what's God doing in your life Or to put it another way, what's God doing in your life that you don't maybe don't understand? Or what's God doing in your life that you have a hard time wrestling with? Take some time and consider God's promises that He's been faithful and fulfilling on every single page of Scripture. We're fickle people. I'm fickle. And if you're like me, you're fickle too. We like to sing and dance when it's summertime and the sun's out and we can uh, be doing the things that we like. We're sort of fair-weather Christians, at least that's our tendency. But what's God doing in your life right now that you don't understand? And if you consider that God is faithful in every single page of Scripture to fulfill His promises, He's a good God who wants good things for His children. Why not surrender to His will, even though you might not understand? His plans are good. So that was the first thing, God's call. We're halfway there. The second thing is this, is Abraham's faith. So we looked at God's call, now we'll consider Abraham's faith. Verse two of of our passage this morning. For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted to him as righteousness. So it was Abraham's faith alone, nothing else, nothing beyond that. But in the moment where he had faith, in Genesis chapter 15, it was his faith that was credited to him as righteousness. In other words, he didn't earn it. Like if you have a job, so I've worked lots of jobs growing up. In fact, one time I worked a summer picking oysters absolute worst job in my life but at the end of the week I did it for one week I sat on a five gallon bucket for from the high tide till it went out to low and came back till the water come up to my ankles that's when I knew the day was done I sat on a bucket and picked oysters and at the end of the week man I I have never worked harder for like nine bucks an hour it was it was brutal but those wages they weren't a gift my boss Clark didn't come up to me say oh Andrew I have a gift for you here you go thanks for spending your week with me here's a gift no I worked hard I earned that and so if Abraham earned his righteousness, then, then, then God's just a God who wants to make transactions and do business deals. But so that we would know that it wasn't earned, his faith was credited to him as righteousness, it was more 
of a gift. So it was neither his faithfulness nor his keeping the law nor his works that earned him righteousness. Because again, remember that humanly speaking, there was absolutely no hope. Sarah was barren. They were childless. He was old. She was old. The Bible says she was advanced in years. She doesn't, the Bible didn't say she was old. She was advanced in years. Okay, if you're a young man, remember that, okay? Language matters. <laughs> Your mom's not old. She's advanced in years. But verse 18 of Romans chapter 4 In hope he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, seeing as he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. Verse 20 says, No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised, and that's why his faith was counted to him as righteous. Do you believe that God's able to do what he promises? Do you believe that? Consider some of the things that God has promised us, that he won't leave us, he won't forsake us, that his word is true. And if we believe those things, that should give us good reason to have faith and to trust in a God who's trustworthy. Fully convinced. Abraham didn't roll the dice. It's not like going to Vegas, just come on. But he was fully, fully convinced he believed in God, that there wasn't even a chance, there wasn't even a possibility that God would fault on his promises, but he was fully convinced when the circumstances made no sense and the, the, the proverbial deck was stacked against him, he believed he had hope against hope. I can remember when I was a young boy, I had a fear, it took me a while, I can swim now, but before I could swim, I had a, I had a long journey in learning to swim, and it wasn't easy for me. I had a hard time uh, I don't know if, anytime I was in freshwater, pools were fine, but freshwater for me was, was, was a little bit harder. And I can remember one time we went to, uh, uh, I grew up in Alberta, we went to a place called Ghost Lake. Okay, that's a, not a good lake name <laughs> for a kid who's scared to swim, Ghost Lake. But I went to Ghost Lake, it's a real place, you can look it up, and we had a boat. And my parents decided we're going to go and have a fun day on the lake, and hopefully by the end of this, Andrew will come back learning, having learned how to swim. And so uh, I just white-knuckled the, I, I liked being on the tube and the water skis, but any time there was a chance of swimming, I just, I was happy on the boat. I did not want to swim. I didn't like getting flipped off the tube. I just liked being on the boat or on something that was, was floaty, like a tube. And I was afraid because I couldn't see the bottom. Because when you swim in a lake, if you've ever swam in a lake and you open your eyes and you look down, it's very creepy. You don't know what's down there and your mind begins to play, play tricks with you. Well, well maybe there's sharks Andrew, it's a lake. Well, no, but maybe there's freshwater sharks. Or maybe the, the, the fish are hungry and they, they'll eat my toes. I was, I was a young boy. I was not thinking rationally. I had all these reasons to be afraid because I couldn't see the bottom. And here's, here's what I think. I think God calls us to great faith when we can't see the bottom. God calls us to have faith when we can't see the bottom. Consider a story. Maybe you've heard of a man named John Patton. He's long since been gone to be with the Lord. But in 1858, John and his wife Mary responded to God's call to reach a people group in a place called New Hebrides, which today is uh, Vanuatu. And there's, it's a series of islands just kind of between Australia and anyways, it's in the South Pacific. But there's, a, there's a, a chain of islands that had been discovered 
and had, was largely unreached, but there was a tribe of primitive, of, of native people to that land. And in 1958, they answered the, or, or sorry, 1858, they answered the call to go evangelize to these people. But about 20 years prior, in the year of 1839, on November 20th, two missionaries from the UK, from the London Missionary Society, landed on the island of uh, Eromanga. I don't know if I'm saying that right. But there's an island that two missionaries went and landed on to try and do the same thing 20 years prior. And they only lasted a few minutes because as John Patton recounts in his autobiography, they were killed and eaten only minutes after landing on this island. And in 1848, about 10 years after that, another team of, a larger team of missionaries from the same organization in London, they were driven off the island after only seven months. And so here God's faithful people say, yeah, we're going to go serve the Lord in New Hebrides. After only minutes, the two lost their lives to cannibals. And years later, a group of missionaries only made it seven months. How discouraging would that be? Let's look a little further into his story. And basically all we know from John Patton's life is what he tells us in his autobiography. If you get a chance to read it, I, I would encourage you to do so. But the tribe's spirituality on, on this island, uh, the island of Tana where they served, uh, involved child and widow sacrifice. It involved occasional cannibalism, like in the case of the two missionaries years earlier, after they would d- defeat an enemy or, or conquer an enemy. Cannibalism was a, was a way to show dominance and victory. Okay, oftentimes they would sacrifice uh, widows and children to appease their gods. I don't know about you, but this sounds like a pretty unlikely people group to turn from their ways, to turn from their primitive forms and find salvation in Jesus. So here's what happens. John and his new wife Mary in uh, the year 1830, or, or pardon me, 1858, they go, they answer the call from God to go serve on the island of Tana. And four months into the mission, Patton's wife Mary falls with a fever, which for you and I is not a big thing because we have medication. But the fever took her life. And they had a newborn son at that point. He was just a few months old. And within, th- within three weeks of that point, his newborn son also lost his life. He succumbed to the fever. And so John Patton, lonely man, with a shovel, hand-dug the grave for his wife and his only son, just a, a short walk from his, from his handmade hut, as he continued to serve God lo- alone and childless. He can recount, he, he was there for a few more years, but he can recount during that time waking up at night to, to a dog, his dog, who, uh, he, as, as he just so beautifully tells us, saved his life on, on a number of occasions. But he recounts waking up in the middle of the night to, to the sharp bark of a dog that gave him an alert that he needed to wake up. And he woke up on, number, on a number of occasions surrounded by the angry natives who sought to kill his life. He recounts of a story of being followed around everywhere he went at gunpoint with a musket. The chief of the tribe had a musket and he was kind of tooling around and just followed around for several hours and by God's grace never, never fired. He recounts of uh, hiding up in a tree in the middle of the night overnight, just hiding. They didn't have flashlights, obviously. So he was able to go undetected up hiding in the tree silently while there was a manhunt actively out to seek his life. He would go from one ghastly crisis to the next, John Patton would, for those four years. And eventually he was driven off the island and a ship came to pick him up and he went back. In 1862, he went back. You see, but God wasn't finished with with Patton and his ministry there after having lost everything that mattered to him, his wife and his child. 
He remarried a woman named Margaret and returned to New Hebrides to a different island this time, an island called Anawa in 1866 with his wife. And for 41 years after that point, they continued faithful and fruitful ministry. And by the time that uh, Margaret died, I believe she was close to 90 or in her 90s when she died, the entire island of Anawa had come by that point to saving faith in Christ, which by God's grace is, is a miracle. Praise God. But I think John Patton had a great deal of faith when he couldn't see the bottom. Most of us like to see the bottom. <laughs> I like swimming in a pool because I felt safe and I could see the bottom. And I think when God calls us to things, we like to do so on our terms. We'll say, sure, God, I'll do that, but it, as long as it doesn't cost me my house, as long as I don't have to go introduce some, myself to someone who I don't know, or as long as I'll, I'll give a little bit of money, but as long as it's not into my, you start dipping into my savings account, then God, we need to talk. We like to serve God and we like to be obedient and have faith, but it's on our own terms because we like to see the bottom. But God calls us to trust in him even when we can't, and in his infinite wisdom, he oftentimes requires that we step out beyond into the deep end, into the deep part of the lake where we can't see the bottom. So my question to you then is where does this kind of faith come from? Where Abraham could, in verse 4, from, from being told God's promises to one verse later where it says, and Abraham did just as the Lord commanded. For that to be written about you and Joe did just as the Lord commanded or and Andrew did just as the Lord commanded. Where does that kind of faith come from? Where does that kind of bold, intrepid faith come from to be able to serve God at any cost? To have faith. I want to look at... Uh, Jesus' ministry to his disciples. And in Matthew chapter 10, he, he basically gives them a, a long ministry uh, kind of crash course on what you need to know to be a missionary. And here's what he says in Matthew 10, verse 38 and 39 to his disciples. Whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. So where do we get this faith? Well, I think that faith starts at the end of ourselves when we're willing to lose our life in order to gain it. As John Patton did, at the end of ourselves, we find this unhibited faith in God. When every fiber of our being is willing to have faith and willing to put our trust in God. When no matter the cost, we can lay aside our desires, our comforts. We can take up our cross and follow him so that God would receive the glory when we can't see the bottom. See, John Patton knew who, he knew what he was doing. He knew where he was going. But he also knew who God was. And at risk, certainly willing to lose his life for the mission of the gospel, he was willing to lose his life to, to, in order to find it and be obedient. And here's what he says. One of the elders of, of this missions organization uh, named Mr. Dixon pulls him aside after a, a meeting maybe similar to this one in a building similar to this one. He pulls him aside and says, John, you know what happened 20 years ago, right? You will get eaten by cannibals if you go. This man was, it was, was an old, older gentleman, Paxton tells us, or Patton tells us, sorry. And he has sharp recollections, sharp memories of those two missionaries that they sent out who were eaten. And so he doesn't want to lose another missionary. So he, he, he rebukes him. He pulls him aside and says, John, you can't go. You will get eaten by cannibals. Here's his reply in his autobiography. Mr. Dickinson you are advanced in years, okay? And your own prospect is soon to be laid in the grave. In other words, you're going to die soon. 
and there you will be eaten by worms. I confess to you that if I can but live and die serving and honoring the Lord Jesus, it will make no difference to me whether I'm eaten by cannibals or eaten by worms. Cheeky guy. And in the great day, my resurrection body will rise as fair as yours in the likeness of our risen Redeemer. You see, I think John Patton, not only could he not see the bottom, but he knew whose he was. He knew that his life was not his own. He responded in such boldness, I think, because he heeded the words of Romans uh, chapter 14, where it says, For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. So if you're a follower of Jesus this morning, if you're at home and you're a follower of Jesus, you belong to the Lord's. You're not your own. Even if everything you own was taken from you, you're stripped of everything, all of your possessions, your house, your bank accounts, your clothes, all of your possessions. The only thing you have left to hang on to, your very life itself, is still not yours. You are not your own. You belong to Christ. So I think... Only when we abandon ourselves and we realize that we're willing to take up our cross and follow him can we have the bold kind of faith and the bold kind of prayer like the psalmist has in Psalm 91 where the psalmist says, He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. Let me pray for us.